Hey there, I'm Adam Gamwell. And I'm Gary David. Welcome to Experience by Design Podcast, the podcast where we explore experience designs of all kinds. Now, today's guest on Experience by Design is Darrell Coleman. He's CEO and founder of DC Design, which is not what we initially thought in Washington, DC. The DC stands for his initials and the initials of his brother, who is a significant influence in his life, which we discuss in the podcast. Now, DC Design is a social impact design and strategy consultancy, and they've done a ton of amazing work, such as reforming the criminal justice system of Santa Clara, California, improving school access for pre-K kids and their families, and leading design workshops for social impact and organizational strategy. So based on this work, we dig into what is social design and how everyone can be a part of designing for a better world. As you might imagine, when you're trying to make massive changes in social systems and communities, there's a lot of challenges that go along with that. Darrell tells us how he deals with these challenges, including when you have different groups who are part of that design ecosystem who may in fact not share the same goals, and how you can bring together all these voices and how important it is that all voices feel that they're being heard. We also dig into his work in developing and constructing wind turbines, which took him to the forests of Nicaragua, where he tried to not only design a product, but try to create some level of self-sufficiency for the people he was designing for. He also talks about how this kind of work is more meaningful for him than, let's say, designing a water bottle for professional cyclists. During a time where a lot of discussion is being had in our relationships, in our communities, and in the world around how to effect social change, Darrell's work with DC Design really does show us a way forward in how we can use design thinking and how we can use human-centered design to create opportunities for a broader social impact and a brighter future for everybody. So we hope you enjoy the chat. shopping at 7 a.m. this morning, which is what I apparently do now is go to the grocery store at 7 a.m. because it tends to be less crowded. Uh, I was thinking about, you know, this idea of talking with you today and both it's, it's interesting timing, but it's always interesting timing, right? I mean, the, I came across your website with my criminology class, criminal justice class, and I saw the material on DC design around redesigning the criminal justice system. And that tends to be a hot topic right now is, you know, how do we redesign the criminal justice system or conversely, can it be redesigned or does it need to be just, you know, ripped down and, and something new brought in, you know, so, so it's not just this moment. We could have had this conversation two years ago and it would have been still the same questions. And we could unfortunately probably have this conversation two years from now and unfortunately be dealing with a lot of the same stuff. So like, I don't know if that's a depressing way of starting out the podcast or not. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that there there are a number of aspects, you know, across social systems, including our criminal justice system, that we need to take another look at. Um, one of our you know, our big design philosophies is ultimately that the the society that we have was designed. Um, you know, we have reproducible outcomes that happen over and over again. When those happen, um, sometimes they're good, sometimes they're not good. 
Uh, and when they're not good, we need to recognize that the systems that created them were designed in the first place. And we can re-examine those systems to figure out what needs to change to make better outcomes in the future. That makes me think, and I sociology major, right? Sociology PhD. To what extent does design, especially the kind of design work that you do, stop being about creating new products or whatnot, but being about social change and really social movements, creating social movements. I mean, is, is there a fine line or are they kind of crossing over and one and the same in, in this kind of social design and redesign space that we're talking about? No, I think, I think for us, and so I'll tell you a little bit more just about DC design in general and sort of how our, our approach to all this works out, what our philosophy is. So we're a social impact strategy and design consulting firm. So our focus is on how do we take this design lens um, and this, uh, which, which, which for us is rooted in human-centered design, um, and apply that to social issues. The framework or the lens that we're coming from, and even my own background, I mean, started in product design, um, which is you know how do we create a bicycle? I'm sorry, a, a water bottle for elite bicyclists, for example. Right? We know who we're designing for. We've got one target population. Um, we we understand what the question is that we need to answer, and we're going to go test with that group of people. That's how the design thinking method was sort of you know created or originated was for for challenges like that. Um, but as a company, what we've been focused on is saying it's a really useful lens to understand the individuals you're designing for on a on a deep level before you start to create something for them. Um, but if you really look at what the biggest quality of life enhancing opportunities are across our society, they don't tend to map onto pure product design as clearly as we we might hope that they do, or some might hope that they do. They tend to be wrapped up a lot more in the right. social systems and the social infrastructure that we all live by. So, um, so our approach is really saying, um, what does it look like to understand the people who are impacted by a given challenge, a given issue in society? Um, so that might be homelessness, right? It might be housing insecurity, which is which is what comes before homelessness. It might be, um, you know, incarceration or, or mass incarceration or the effects that that has on one's community. We, we, we try to understand who are the people who are impacted by that and um, what are the elements within the system that sort of produce those outcomes for them? How do we take this design lens by understanding their needs, the situations that they come from, the aspirations that they have, and then redesign elements of that system itself to make things function better? So uh, for us, we start at the very beginning with a very um, open-minded perspective. Uh, And then in the end, we end up with some sort of solution. So that might be a new strategy. It might be a new policy. It might be a new service. It might be a new app that we develop alongside governments, foundations, nonprofits, and communities. But it starts at this same core core place of saying, how do we understand who it is who's going through a given issue in the first place? This is this is a I love I love the approach because uh, when I teach experience design, I always teach from a systems perspective and looking at the, the experience ecosystem, looking at, as you talk about on your website, stakeholder mapping. And, and the criminal justice system right now is such a, a challenging environment because just thinking about the distance that can exist between the stakeholders, not all of them, right? I, I don't believe that you say, well, you have cops on one side and people on another side, and then you have all these other people. Well, you know, not all cops are the same. Not all people are the same. You know, there's all kinds of gradations and constituencies and interests and everything else going on. But when there it can be such a gulf that exists, 
that really does become a challenging environment to integrate those perspectives in a way that can create maybe some alignment between them. And so I wonder, given the work that y'all y'all did on uh, on criminal justice uh, redesign, you know, what, what are your thoughts on that particular kind of challenge at this moment? Yeah, I definitely think um, what you're pointing out is a really big issue, both in in design itself, but also in especially in systems design. Um, so, you know, sort of going to the example I was giving before, you know, if you want to design a water bottle for elite bicyclists. Um, which is, you know, just an example I like to use in general, not something that I've done before. But if you want to do that, um, you know who you're designing for, right? You're designing for the bicyclists. You know who they are. Maybe it's the Tour de France winners or it's the, the contenders for that race. Like you know how to, you know how to uh, identify those individuals. But when you're designing within a system, for example, criminal justice reform, this is a really big issue right now um, with between, you know, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, um, you know, Ahmaud Arbery and others who, whose deaths we're really grappling with right now. Um, there's a lot of questions about what does it look like to design a system that functions well for everyone. And I think what you're hitting at is um, that it's not enough to just understand the needs and perspectives of one stakeholder who might be um, those who are currently most impacted, but we also need to create a system that works well for everyone within that ecosystem. There are some people who don't don't take issue with the system as it exists right now um, because they haven't felt it right. impact their own lives. And so the question as you design a new system is, is that new system going to continue to serve those who feel that the current system works for them um, while also improving outcomes for those the system does not work for? And so that requires an assessment and understanding of all the stakeholders who are involved. So... You know, to give a quick example, we worked with Santa Clara County in California to develop their three-year strategy for jail reentry. Um, and so this was really looking at how do we put in place a strategy that reduces the number of people coming back to jail once they've left jail. Our process involved right. interviews with those who are incarcerated, who've been incarcerated, um, who've become mentors to people who were incarcerated. Um, but it also included interviews with the sheriff and the DA, the public defender, as well as um, the director of, of reentry services and the board of supervisors, as well as faith-based organizations in the community. So, you know, in our approach, we ended up working with and, and, and really understanding the needs of over 200 stakeholders across the ecosystem that represented a ton of different groups. And the challenge right. from a systems perspective is how do you design for all of those different stakeholders um, simultaneously, rather than just the elite bicyclists, where you've got sort of one archetype of, of user that you're going for. Especially when with the elite bicyclists, and I am a cyclist, you know, the goal is pretty clear. They want to go faster, so they need a more aerodynamic bottle that also is easy to handle at speed, et cetera, et cetera, can hold water or hold some kind of liquid. With criminal justice, or even yesterday or two days ago with the election in Georgia, People were online saying, I can't believe, you know, they screwed it up so bad that they, there are such these long lines. I'm thinking, well, what if the goal was really long lines? And what if mm. it wasn't screwed up? What if their goal was the secretary of state, the governor, what, whoever made the voting machines? What if their goal was to have those long lines? Then the system is working perfectly. So, you know, that one of the big challenges here is how do you align goals? And what if the goals are so different? You know, for, you know, I was thinking about this with policing, you know, if the metric of success for police is arrests made, 
that metric can work against the interests of the community. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It was something that, that really um, struck me that I was, I'm thinking about here is, is this idea, right, that, that kind of to what you're both saying and that uh, I'm reflecting on is that oftentimes, you know, we do kind of have this idea that systems themselves are broken, but then kind of to Gary's point, um, and we see this also, you know, with, with um, biodiversity conservation programs in, in Peru I've worked with, but also programs that we see here in the U.S. too that are, whether on educational curriculum design programs, um, oftentimes like the system feels, quote, broken, but it, systems do what they're designed to do, right? And so it's, it's part of it too is like flipping that lens to, to kind of, it's easier for kind of us in the design space or the social science space to like to see and to admit that, right? But um, bringing that into the narrative too, I think is a really challenging piece, right? To, to let stakeholders who are not, you know, they may not have the same perspective, um, which comes from the privilege of distance a little bit, right? That we can we can have the time to kind of float over and look at the system and talk to a bunch of stakeholders, right? Uh, but I think that's such an important piece too to kind of bring because actually my wife and I were talking about the, the Georgia elections this morning too, and, and just um, both like it seems like there's this craziness of these lines, but then you know that's you know it, it's 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 a design on purpose, right? Um, and you know, the, the outcomes may be both unintended or intended, depending on who you're looking for. Right. But then when we talk about redesigning the system, I think it's really interesting piece, especially with criminal justice reform, I think because, right, there is a kind of as Gary and I were talking a little bit before we, we, we um, hopped on the call that, that, you know, what does it mean to design a system like this or redesign a system like this when sometimes stakeholders can't stand each other? You know, and, and like the idea, like, for, for example, like the defund the police or abolish the police, like two slogans that um, mean specific things. They both mean different things. Right. But they they get picked up very differently by left and right. We don't have to make this into a whole political conversation, but just just knowing that, like the stakeholders will come from different sides of perspectives. Uh, and if they're doing that, then what does it mean to, to sort of take into account these these perspectives as part of the, the design process? So I guess I'm, I'm kind of curious, like when it's work both with your work in Santa Clara, but. I'm just thinking generally too about systems design. What does it mean to, uh, you know, like how much how much latitude do you normally find that you can you can kind of have for like bringing in a bunch of perspectives like this? And then how do those filter into, uh, you know, contemplating what a what a design solution is that actually does in fact help all right, yeah. uh, or that can provide much more space for more equality or more inclusivity? Um, it's a tough question, man. <laughs> Definitely <laughs> tough, it's tough work. I I think um, I think that these you know I think. I think to the earlier point about um, systems being designed, you know, to produce the outcomes they produce, I think that's a really important place to start and, and to understand. One of the things that we sometimes talk about within our team uh, is this idea of, um, you know, uh, rebuilding what we call like broken systems, right? And but that's 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 just because that's easy to understand that concept of a system being broken. Um, it implies that at some point mm -hmm. it was working properly, um, when in reality, right. you know, sometimes it means actually redesigning uh, redesigning the system from the ground up, right? Sometimes it means creating a competing system that challenges the status quo in the existing system in a way that forces the current system to change. Uh, and so I think when we look at this, these challenges where you've got stakeholders who can't stand each other. Um, I've come to believe within social movements that these different stakeholders, they all play a role. You know, I think we look back on history, we look at times like the civil rights movement and we say, well, you know, those people, they peacefully protested or, or those people, um, they had a specific set of demands or those people, you know, X, Y, and Z, they did these things. When the reality is that the history book has cleaned up 
history to make it something that fits mm-hmm. into a page or two pages. So we're like, right. what happened in 1968? <laughs> uh, when the right. reality is these these people who had competing perspectives about how things should progress all existed then, they all exist now, they will all exist in the future. And so um, I think what what happens when you have people who have these these, um, perspectives that seem so far mismatched from one another is they really create space though for, they do create some space for conversation, uh, for conversation about like, what does that mean? Like there are people who wanna abolish the police altogether. Wow, like this is a really serious issue for some people. Um, you know, there are people who want to make the police way, way stronger. Like that's, that's a perspective we want to understand as well. There might be parts of these perspectives where we just say that's incompatible with the ultimate goal, um, of, of what we're trying to accomplish here, which is a system that works well for everyone. But I do think it creates sort of, you know, space for, for that conversation to be had. The other thing that, you know, for me comes out of this is that you have, you to to create change that lasts, it requires a, a critical mass of stakeholders to be bought in. Um, so those critical masses can build up in different places. So you know, in Minneapolis right now, they just said that they're going to basically like scrub their police department. You know, they're 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 shutting it down and they're going to um, start with something new. So that's an experiment. We're going to see what comes from that. That's an experiment that is happening there and wouldn't have necessarily happened in another place. Maybe maybe Dallas, Texas is not right. not on that um, that frequency right now. But because of that conversation um, that's been happening about abolishing police, and because of the conversation or, or the collection of stakeholders, I should say, that's in that location, we're going to learn a little bit more about what the next model could be. Um, based on what they put together. And I think that's sort of how, how change happens. We're gonna, we'll see the experiment, we'll see the results. And then from there, others will, will feel more confident either copying parts of that or saying, let's not do that. So one of the things I have to ask, given all of this is given you could be designing water bottles for professional cyclists, why in the world would you take something <laughs> like this? You know, it's like, I, you know what? Water bottles are nice. But that's a little bit too simple. Let me go and try to reform the criminal justice system. That sounds good. So like, what was like, what was the impetus given you could be doing a lot with your knowledge and how to approach problems and design products? Why this? Yeah. When I was a kid, um, and I always, I always think of this as sort of a, it's like a God given dream. It's like when I was a kid, I've always, I, since I was a kid, I've always known what I wanted to be. I always knew that I wanted to be an inventor. Um, and I also always knew that I wanted to run my own company. I wanted to work for myself one day. Um, my grandmother tells stories of me saying that when, when I was like four years old, that that's what I said I was going to do. Um, so that's been sort of my trajectory for a really long time, but I didn't have direction to it. You know, I was, when I was, when I was eight years old, I remember um, telling my mom this as well. And I was planning to make, you know, tents that you can have in your your back pocket, like camping tents that you could have in your back pocket, you push a button and the whole tent folds out, right? Or, or, or water bottles for elite bicyclists or other products along those lines, flying cars. Um, but the next year, my brother was diagnosed with a rare form of cancer. And that was something that I think really impacted me and impacted my family. You know, for the next five years, I watched as he fought that disease and um, it ultimately ended up passing away from it. Um, a really challenging circumstance for me at the time, but it, it, it gave me a unique perspective, I would say, or a different perspective than I had had before, where I started to 
look at the world differently. I started to recognize, you know, there are people actually who are hurting or who are in need that we often don't think about. I think the juxtaposition of going from a cancer ward, um, you know, at night to going to your high school the next day where none of the kids are thinking about kids in cancer wards was something that was really eye-opening for me. I was like, wow, mm-hmm. like, there's people that others don't think about. And I wouldn't necessarily have been thinking about them either had I not, um, had, I not had this experience. And then I started to look, though, at my own history, my, my you know, my my family's history or my uh, ancestors' history, and I said, you know, there are, there are people who have always been in need of something that we don't necessarily pay as much attention to, um, and they exist across our society to, today, right? We've got homelessness, um, we've got people who are sick, we've got people who are suffering from um, all sorts of ailments across society, and so I I sort of got to this point where I couldn't not see those people. I couldn't not um, think about them anymore. And and I set my sights on saying, well, I'm going to be an inventor um, and I want to make my my time on this earth feel really meaningful for me in that sense. So I said, I'm going to focus in on how do I design things that improve quality of life for the people that very few people seem like they're designing for right now, which has led me down this long path of product design to start with, uh, all the way through to where I'm at right now, which is really on systems design here in the United States and looking at uh, systemic and structural inequality. Right. I mean, it's, it's interesting that sometimes or often these experiences can create pathways to empathy. And that's, you know, it's, there's always that challenge in design work, right? Is that we have to teach people to be empathetic and you're like, well, if you got to do that, then that's actually saying quite a bit, right? You know, and, and I don't know that we we naturally lack empathy, but I think in certain roles, or I know in certain roles that we can, we can lose it. And so this, this, these foundational experiences that you're, you're relating really making it a kind of default condition of yours of having empathy and wanting to make that kind of difference. Thank you. And I'm, I'm curious, I'd love to kind of hear your thinking about too, the, the idea of, um, I, I really appreciate this idea of, of thinking about how do we design to improve quality of life and, and you know, that itself kind of lives in this field that we might call social design. And, and so I guess I'm, I'm curious a bit about to your background in terms of you did, uh, I think you, you went to, uh, study engineering at Stanford, right. Um, I did. and, and, and the D school too, which is super cool. You know, I, I, we, I think we all have like a design crush in the D school, <laughs> you know, um, a little, little crush, little crush, you know, but, but I'm just kind of curious about these ideas of, of kind of engineering in, in sort of the, the, one of the homes of design thinking, right. One of the places where, the, where the, this framework came from and human centered design, you know, how these tools are kind of how you, how you sort of honed in on these were, these were kind of two tools or two schools of thought, two forms of, of ways of approaching the world of how do we solve problems or see problems? Um, like how those kind of played into your, your, your pathway as it were, like how, how did it come to think about, okay, engineering to build stuff, maybe design as a way to think about whatever. And like, cause that moved, you know, from, to me, again, this is as, as an anthropologist, as an outsider engineering to me is this very mathematical, logical, like we're going to put these pieces in place. Right. Um, but then we go from that to then like a social justice design, right? Criminal justice reform, where we're talking to multiple stakeholders. We're not necessarily making something. We are making something, right? But we're not necessarily designing an app. It could be an app, right? It could be a service, a policy, right? So how do we go from, you know, engineering? How does that play into this this whole, I guess, ecosystemic form of thinking that, that, you, that you built up? Yeah, thanks. Um, I, it's been a, it's been a journey, <laughs> to be honest. I, um, 
I'll give you a little bit of the story of sort of how I arrived at, at those two poles. Um, knowing that I wanted to be an inventor and knowing I had this affinity for creating products in the first place, right? So my dad is who I call, I call him the best engineer that I know. And he doesn't have a degree in engineering. He's a retired Air Force Master Sergeant now, but he grew up um, fixing cars. That's sort of, that was his first job. And he did that all through my life. Um, I put two engines into cars by the time I was 12 years old, sort of grew up in this house where if we were going to have it, we were going to build, we were going to build it. Um, So, um, you know, that was, that was true through and through, Um, you know, shocked by electricity while boarding up, while uh, closing in our garage, turn that into a, um, a media room in our house and, and all sorts of things like that. So I had all these experiences that fortify the engineering side of things, which was, this is a way that you can create things that, um, that are functional here in the world. And, um, I, I fell in love with physics as well, which was a way of seeing the world really clearly to me. You know, once you learn about air resistance and you understand that, um, that truck driving down the road is pushing tons of air, you understand why when it passes you, it pushes your car to the side, you know, things like that just were really fascinating for me. I went off to Stanford, um, and, and decided to study mechanical engineering, but I remember being in high school and people would ask this question. They would say, how do you, how do you just become an inventor? Right? How do you like, how do you become Thomas Edison? And I was like, you know, it's a really good question. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I got to Stanford and I remember it was my first engineering class. It was ME 101. We were given this assignment, which was list a hundred problems in the world. And as I did that, I was listing them and I got through, you know, 67 mundane Durrell problems like cracks in the sidewalk while skateboarding to class or my clothes don't dry all the way in the dry, in the washing machines, right? Or in the, in the dryers. Uh, and I ran out of like self, self, you know, focused ideas and, uh, number 67 was poverty, you know? And I was like, oh, like Mm. that's, yeah, that's, that's connected to what I've been focused on or what I care about. And then the next one was, was hurricanes. And it was this idea that, you know, hurricanes are going to rip through the Southeastern United States. If not this year, next year, if not next year, the year after that, like we know it's coming. Um, what are we designing to to address that. Like, we know people are going to die within the next couple of years in a hurricane here in the United States. What are we creating for that problem? Wildfires are going to tear through California this summer. Um, and, and, uh, and so I started, I, I was really focused in on that piece of things. And that's really where my engineering mind was for a while. Things like that, things like power generation in developing countries, et cetera. Um, but I, I did this project when I was a junior and it was focused on it was focused on power generation in uh, countries that don't have access to electricity. And I designed this wind turbine, vertical axis wind turbine for power generation there. And um, because I think I was so focused on how do you improve quality of life, I had this question, which was not just like, can I create a really cool product, which I was learning how to do in engineering, but it was like, how do I know anyone wants this? How do I know anyone needs this? And uh, right. I applied for this this grant, this research grant, and I, I received it. I won it, which was great. Uh, and, you know, Stanford paid for me to go to Nicaragua and do research on how access to electricity affects quality of life. I took my wind turbine with me. I, you know, I lived with a host family in the forest. I um, spoke with people, you know, to learn more about what their experience was like. And um, that was just this really eye-opening experience for me, which was that you can't you can't know from the data what 
the actual, what the data means, right? The data itself doesn't tell you what the data means. The conversations with people tells you what the data means. Um, and um, when I came back to Stanford that next year, right, I had taken sort of one design thinking class so far, um, but that was 2008. So design thinking wasn't super, it wasn't the like worldwide phenomenon that it is right now. It was, it had just moved from being in a really small building at Stanford, um, which is where I took my first class, to, to moving to the larger uh, Peterson building that it's in now. Um, and, and so I started to learn more of like the philosophy of design thinking and realized that that really matched up with this instinct that I had had to go to Nicaragua and ask these questions in the first place. Um, so that's sort of the journey that I took. I took more classes at the D school, um, did my master's in sustainable design at Stanford, uh, and, you know, I've taught at, at Stanford uh, Design School um, for a number of years, uh, a number of different classes, et cetera, uh, since then. So it's been quite the journey, but I think that's how, how I came to marry those two uh, sides of the design equation. Right on. It does, yes. I'm like, oh, I, I miss, I'm missing you. I'm like, Gonna bus tickets right now to go. There we go. <laughs> right. Um, you know, uh, one thing I'm actually really curious about too is that so uh, you know, kind of reading a bit more about your story too, in that uh, see the wind turbine was was kind of that's kind of a, a, your first business that you you went to set up too, um, and I really appreciate this idea about like talking like I love the idea that data doesn't tell you things but talking to people about it does and and, and like one of the main questions right as a product designer. Uh, and, and as, as a business owner, right, is do people want the product or service that I'm selling or how do I, how do I let them know that I have one? And then, and what does that mean? Uh, and so I'm actually really just curious too, like in an entrepreneurial sense about this too, like, how do you let people know, uh, that you do this kind of work? And like, it's kind of like, how do you make the business case for, uh, either a wind turbine or then your, your work with DC design too, of letting people know that, that this is the work that you do and, and make the business case that you actually need design consulting, you need strategy. Um, is it people recognize it like, oh crap, our system's not working or is it like, actually, you know, is it a pitch process is it a sell process? You know, I'm really just curious about this, like in this entrepreneurial perspective too, of, um, selling a, like a consulting services or is a, is a really interesting space, yeah. um, to both take design and engineering, you know? Yeah. I'll, I'll close out the wind turbine story. Um, you know, on, in that situation, I think this applies across the board when you're creating a business when you're creating a product, when you're creating a service, when you're creating something that's supposed to help people, um, you should have a clear understanding of what their core needs are so that you're not guessing as to whether what you're creating would be valuable or not, right? So the wind turbine example, I went to Nicaragua and I learned um, very factually that that uh, gaining access to electricity was something people really wanted. Um, they didn't necessarily want the solution I had created um, in, its, in its form that, that I presented, but they did you know, give me a number of specifications for what it would need to change to. Um, unfortunately, I actually uh, abandoned the principles of design thinking after that um, mm. because of out of need in many ways. I didn't have the funds to move to Nicaragua right after graduating from college, which is when I started this company. Um, so I said, you know, I'm going to make a I'm going to make a turbine for the U.S. market. It's going to um, it's going to meet the needs of, of people here in the U.S. I'll improve the technology and then I'll take it back to uh, industrializing nations. Right. And the reality was there was no need in, in the U.S. for the type of technology that I was creating. It's not nearly as um, as important to people here who have access to the grid or solar panels yeah. and far more exposable, dispendable, 
income. So that was just a, that was a really big lesson that answers part of the entrepreneurial question is how do you get someone to believe that they need what you're selling is like, it's actually really hard to get someone to believe they need what you're selling. The better approach is to confirm that they need something and then create the thing in response to that, which is a large part of why DC design doesn't say that we're a product design company or a service design company or an app design company. We say that, you know, we are, we're a, we're a, a strategy and design firm, and we will create any of those things as a result of what we understand is needed. Um, so there's there's sort of that piece. On the other mm-hmm. side of, you know, how do you go about sort of letting people know uh, that you do this sort of like social impact strategy and design consulting? Um, that's been a journey as well. I think that there are people who who recognize that they want they want help. Um, they want help thinking through how to deepen their impact, how to um, deliver on value to the people that they serve in a way that they haven't been able to deliver on that value before. And what we do is we um, we offer them, you know, a number of frameworks for how to think about how they could deliver that value and how they could also deliver it more consistently. Um, but a lot of our business has grown via, via word of mouth, um, people looking for someone who can help them with this type of problem. They didn't necessarily know the name for what it was. They didn't know it was, you know, social impact design consulting. Um, but uh, because people in our network know what we do, they've referred clients over to us. And then that's led to those people referring other clients to us as well, right? So we've, we've built out more product offerings specifically around like strategic planning, right? We do strategic planning. Um, we do strategy uh, development overall. We do... Uh, app design, right? Those are um, some of the, the, the things that we produce. We do service design. Um, but it really started off with um, people searching out a, a given need and then um, our network, because they understand, took the time to understand more of what we offer, uh, helping to fill that. I think now in 2020, there's a greater understanding of like what design thinking is and um, and what systems design is. And that there there are people who who do that for a living. It is a, it is an interesting trajectory in terms of the, the point you're making about what I say data plus context equals equals information. If you don't have context, you don't have information, right? And right. It, that can be a tough lift when you're talking to a bunch of MBAs or executives who are are reared in this quantification culture. And at least coming from an academic perspective, you know the old you know, data wars, qualitative versus quantitative and saying, no, you actually both can be useful, right? I mean, it's not, it's, you know, yes. And going back to a design thinking metaphor, it's not either or, or no, but, and you know, it's just, you know, how much of it is education that there's something that we really need to do here. And now that design thinking is more um, embraced as well as ethnography, you know, Adam and I are both ethnographers Mm -hmm. that's being more embraced. It's gotten easier. I've been teaching ethnography at a, in a design program for about 14 years. And at the very beginning, it was a, there wasn't a lot out there that people were talking about, but now it seems, I don't know what your experience is, it's a little bit easier of a conversation to have because of its broad adoptions by some major players who have become notable for their successes by engaging in these approaches. Yeah, definitely. I think there's a greater education in the field as a whole, right, or, or in industry as a whole that, um, that really understanding the community that you serve, what their needs are, what they think is hap- uh, what they think you serve them to do. Um, 
are is is really helpful. And um, I think we've been benefiting from that as well. I think the other piece is to your point about like you know data versus qualitative. Um, I feel really fortunate to to help you know to lead the company and to come from both backgrounds. Right. So engineering is a qual- is a quantitative field. Um, physics is a quantitative field. I really value numbers. I value structure. I value this idea of building something that's meant to last, which is what engineers are supposed to do as well. Um, you know, you think about a bridge, for example, right? Like you need to design a bridge to withstand all of the uh, shifts in weather and other conditions, environmental conditions that would threaten that bridge's ability to safely transport people across it. That's a mindset that I have in anything that I want to build. And then you look at our social systems, right? And you ask when coronavirus hits, were were they were they fortified enough for that uh, for that that storm? Um, you know, and what is that exposed right. about them in the first place? So I, I think. Um, Taking that sort of quantitative edge and saying, um, what does the data say? And then taking that qualitative edge, you know, what does it mean uh, is, is, a, is pretty key. I've actually had some conversations with, with some friends of mine, academics, and one friend that we published a few things on, we use the term social engineering, and people get real twitchy when you start talking <laughs> about social engineering. You know, social system design sounds a little bit better. Social engineering, you know, they go, well, I don't know about that. So I don't know if you've, you know, which is what we're talking about, we're talking about engineering outcomes, this, you know, building something to engineer a certain kind of outcome, ideally. And so I don't know what your experience is with this, like with the branding of it, right? How do we approach the framing of it so that people don't get they don't feel put out by the approach nor that, you know, we're going to, you know, Darrell's going to come in with DC designs and just, you know, change everything. Right. Or even though everything might need to be changed. Yeah. People don't like to feel like you're engineering them. Right. They don't, they don't like to feel like right. <laughs> creating things to manipulate them. And I think that's a, a just, and, you know, it makes a lot of sense as a response to the, the idea of social engineering. Um, so we don't, you know, we don't use that that term. I think, I think that is because social has such broad meanings. When we think of social, it's it's people based, it's systems based, it's um, society as a whole. Um, I think there's also some some elements of that when I think of social engineering that's like, like like genetic in some way, like genetic engineer. Like I don't know. There's something really yeah. um, odd about about the the combination of terms. But yeah, we really think about autonomy. What does it mean for people to be autonomous? What does it mean for people to have the have, have true autonomy? Also, um, if you have a system that's influencing you too much, um, or 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 making it so that you can barely survive, and so that means you have to do a set of activities constantly to just barely make it make it through. How much autonomy do you feel like you really have? How much independence and freedom to really be who you want to be do you have? Right. Our lens is. How do we design systems that um, give people greater freedom to be their fullest self? Um, a big part of what we're about is helping human beings, like real people whose names we know, um, reach their fullest potential and removing barriers that keep them from doing that, which is unfortunate. Uh, it's unfortunate that a number of our social systems were designed with barriers uh, implanted in them, sometimes unintentionally, but often like quite intentionally. Uh, to make it harder for certain yes. groups of people to succeed. We want to remove those barriers. We want to design better, better outcomes. 
It is, uh, uh, Adam has a question, but it is funny when I teach criminal justice or, you know, and I talk to people about this stuff and they said, well, how can the system, you know, how can this happen? And I say, well, have you looked at how, as, at its history? I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, people are shocked at what's going on and sociologists are going, yep, um, exactly as we know. And, you know, you don't have to be a sociologist to know, but it's like, I'm like, this is not PhD stuff. This is like, I read the newspaper stuff or right. I watched a documentary stuff. But yet people don't want to see it because once you see it, then you have to be accountable for it. And once you're accountable for it, then you have to do something about it to change it. Otherwise, you're complicit in it. And that makes people feel really uncomfortable, especially if they don't know what to do. And that's why I think the work that you're doing is like, what can be done? You know, that big question, existential question, what, you know, what's to be done? That this is a way forward of what we can do around these kinds of these kinds of topics that are not alienating, but but integrating of these voices and perspectives. Definitely. Yeah, that, that, seems, that seems like the, the, the question there. I mean, uh, just to tag onto that too, I, uh, it's, it's really interesting, this theme of autonomy as a way of kind of unlocking, you know, a, a kind of unlocking a path for people to see the potential of this kind of design, right? Of this, of this form of doing design work. Um, I mean, one question that I'm just thinking about too is that, it's interesting to me that designers and engineers in this case too have become some of the main players in this space in, in that in, in a different time, we might consider the people to do this would supposedly be politicians um, or people that are doing things like policy. Right. But then um, when we look at social change and we look at social design as, as some of the best ways of actually taking on issues like agency, like autonomy, uh, and recognizing that you know, systems produce the outcomes that they're designed to that they're designed to produce, right? They're, they're not often flukes, uh, and you know it really almost shifts this also this conversation too of of like where empowerment work is, right? And so it is kind of in this designer engineering space, right? That that uh, and I don't know if design thinking is one of the reasons that, that, that maybe it is that like helped kind of popularize. I mean, it certainly helped popularize the idea of design, right? And design thinking as as a process versus like we're here just to make a product, a water bottle for elite bicyclists, but it's interesting just to note that that design has has come to take on in the public imagination a little bit more uh, sense of its own responsibility, right? And that its own capacity in its own agency as, as a field and as a as a space of activism almost, right? To enact change, right? And, and that uh, I think it's one of the cool things that design thinking has done is that it went from, you know, how do I how do I make a product only in thinking, right? Or that design was the thing that, that a marketer gave you at the end to make it look nice, right? It's like moved out of that realm of only being seen like that to now this, uh, you know, field and this methods almost of, of how do we enact change. And so it's interesting just to see that, you know, I don't know if it ever lived in, in politicians, you know, but it's just, uh, it's, it's taken on this new space, I think, you know, in the past 20 years that I think is really interesting and, and cool to see. Because even when I found design thinking, I don't know, six years ago. Uh, and I found it when I was living in Peru and I was doing, you know, a traditional ethnographic project working with indigenous farmers and, and NGOs, non-governmental organizations on designing conservation incentives for quinoa uh, for agrobiodiversity so we can grow kind of biodiverse varieties to help fight climate change versus just crops for market. And as an anthropologist uh, and social scientist, and Gary may, may find this too, that traditionally the way we're supposed to do our study is just to go there you go to a, a certain place and you do research with people, you get to know them, you live with them. Um, you essentially, you know, make new friends, new family members. 
but then you you publish your research elsewhere using a different language. Um, this is more anthropology than sociology at this point, I guess. But um, no, no, we do we we do that much worse than anthropology. Trust fair. me, I can't even read sociology material. Well, that's also also it's in academic ease, right? So it's it's in its own language in English too, right? Um, but so the people that like supposedly would, would theoretically benefit from the study never, never get to. Right. Um, and so, you know, I was really struggling with this cause I didn't want to do that kind of work when I was, when I was, uh, in Peru. And so I found a field called design anthropology, which again, draws on design thinking, human centered design and, and, you know, ethnographic methods and anthropology, uh, you know, as a way of how do we like be wisely, you know, interventionist in our work and like acknowledging that with the work we're doing is interventionist that we are helping design in this case conservation incentive programs for for farmers um, and for scientists um, but doing so in a way that is in conversation with people understanding their real needs and their real their real wants right what do they want if people don't care about conservation you can't design a program to make them care um, but it's more like if we understand their needs of of having access to the market and having some sense of stabilized income and having some sense of autonomy in their lives and that they're not just uh, essentially just sharecropping on somebody else's farm, right? Um, these pieces matter more than what is the program. Mm. Uh, and so, again, it was not about the solution, but it's about really understanding these these problem spaces that, that people have and taking seriously what their own perspectives are, you know? Uh, and so it's interesting to, like, when I came back to the U.S., I realized that's what design thinking was also doing. And so and I didn't know this because, again, I came from, from an anthropology side, but it's been very interesting to see because design did successfully kind of make the leap out of uh, you know, either behind marketing or the academic space into kind of a more mainstream imagination and as a, as a very valuable business proposition, right? It's a, it's a great value add now for a lot of businesses. And so it's been really interesting to see that, that process shift, um, you know, into this space. And so it's, it's like maturing in a, very, in a very unique way that I don't see other industries or other, other fields doing. Like, I mean, we're, Gary and I are both, you know, part of the reason we do this podcast and, and talk and write about anthro and sociology too is to help push those, those disciplines also into this space of taking responsibility for the, the data that we collect and the, the, you know, the people that we work with. And so, um, this ended up not being a question at all. Sorry, but, <laughs> um, you know, but it's, 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 it's interesting kind of like to see how the shift takes place, you know? Yeah. Well, I definitely, I definitely agree that there's been a shift, um, you know, from design as a discipline that design is something that you add on at the end, right. To make things look pretty to, sort of this active participation in, in crafting systems. Um, I do think that there's more of a shift to be made still. Um, when I look at the field of design thinking as a whole, and this is something that we think about a lot, which is, um, and, and there, are, there are a number of efforts around what does it look like to, uh, to change the model design in a way that, that involves, I would even say, um, that ensures that communities lead and that fortifies. Um, so there is there is a model of design that feels a bit uh, colonial, if you will, right? It's it is there are folks who, who have a higher profile now sure. come in from the outside. They bring you know maybe knowledge or insights. They go and they learn things about other people. They create things that they then sell to those other people. They sort of export the value from yeah. um, from that, but they don't they don't leave those communities better able to. Um, address the issues that they came to address, right? And, and there's sort of this, like, I'm holding on to this knowledge and you've got your knowledge. And so for us, um, we really try to steer clear of that. We try to we try to make sure um, 
when I talk about fortification, I want to talk about fortification of systems, right? So pandemic comes and it hits. That's the storm that hits the bridge. Um, is the system fortified enough to continue to serve the people that it's supposed to serve? Question. Um, the next one, though, is are the people continuing to be fortified in a way where they are able to respond to changing dynamics in their own environment? And that means that we work with we work with governments, we work with foundations, we work with nonprofits, we work with community members, right? And it's saying, how do we teach you the way that we do what we do or the way that we think about what we think? So that there's there's not just a, an exchange where you pay us to design something for you. It's um, we are coming in to help uh, say, here are some other possibilities for how you might approach this. You can use them, you can not use them in the future, but ideally you don't need to rely on us permanently for this issue. Um, you're able to uh, address it yourself because there are, there are I, I think some consulting models, they really rely on um, making clients uh, reliant on them. And for us, it's like, we love to work with right. the same clients over and over, but um, what does it look like to work on different issues? Um, what does it look like to make sure that, that organization continues to uh, expand uh, in its ability to serve the community that it works with? What does it make look like for the community to continue to be able to serve themselves? Because there are enough problems in the world for us to not have to uh, create new ones in order to stay in business, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it, it does start to sound to me a lot like, and this is not a criticism at all, and I think this is exactly where I tell my students often, is that as, a, as an ethnographer, right, or human, doing human-centered design, you're often in a position to be a community organizer. I mean, what, you know, going back to my you know, sociology roots of learning about community organizing, community development models, it, it sounds real similar, if not almost exactly the same. You might be using, like, you know, you might not be using Saul Alinsky, and you might be using like Tim Brown versus Saul Alinsky, but you're still kind of using this orientation of the people's voice, integrating perspectives, trying to leave the community in a position where they can develop for themselves versus being reliant on others for what they need. Right. Yeah. And I, I think, I think the idea, I think community organizers or being an organizer is, um, is an incredible role. I think that they've not gotten the credit that they deserve over the years for being behind so many of the movements that have happened, right? There are organizers um, pushing for community level change amongst the people that they live with all over the country. Um, our goal is to work with them um, really to say, how can we support you right, in what you're doing in a way that, that sees the whole system? I'm kind of curious too in this space then. So when, when you're kind of going into uh, getting with, like when you sign up with a client or you, you sign up with a community to go do some design work, how do you go about assembling a team, right? Is it, is it a one man show sometimes? I mean, I have different projects for different sizes, right? But you know, how do you think about putting together your design team and what do you look for in, in social design, you know, folks that can, that can, that can do the work, I guess. Yeah, I mean, so one thing, you know, whether like on the client side, I guess, or on the team side, you know, right? Um, DC Design, we have a team. We're a small firm um, right now, so we've done some really big projects. Like I said, you know, um, strategy for jail reentry, um, work on on homelessness and housing, um, work in foster care, and um, developing you know educational models. We've got a summer program we run in four different states. But we're really a team of six people, um, so I think our uh, it feels it feels nice that I think the level of output that our team has been able to produce is really high for a team of six people. 
Um, and so we all fill different roles within the design process. Our team is also really diverse uh, intentionally. Um, so like everyone comes from a different lived experience. Everyone has a different perspective. Um, and I think that makes us stronger in our ability to respond to the needs of different communities because we're a national organization. So we work across the country. Um, but then the next piece of that is that we we work with, you know, the people who typically hire us are these governments, foundations, and nonprofits. And they bring us in to work with them on a, um, a specific issue. Um, we've got a project, for example, we've been working on in the Central Valley. We work with four different school districts. Uh, we work with a foundation there, a fantastic organization called um, James B. McClatchy Foundation. And um, we're focused on um, increasing the number of uh, English language learners enrolling in pre-K, and then also making sure that all students, especially English language learners, are kindergarten ready. So what, we work with these these districts, and they become um, the, the foundation members, the district members. We all become, you know, a part of a, of the same team, right? So our design process is actually that communities are designing the solutions themselves. We are there to help guide them as they do that. So we've guided, we've helped guide these school districts towards creating new models that have increased enrollment for students. They've created new busing systems. They've created uh, new um, remote uh, teaching and learning methodologies. They've um, sent people out into the community. They've created uh, parent advisory boards. And so the team, it, it sort of like continues to grow over time because one of the major elements of what we focus on is how do you continue to bring more community members uh, into this process? So in that example, that would be you know, parents, for example. Um, how do you bring more of them into the process to help inform what you design, what you create, how you create it, right? So for uh, uh, it, we really are thinking about what does the ecosystem look like? Um, typically, there's an ecosystem mapping exercise sort of early on in that process to say, like, who is your community, right? Who needs to be on this team? It's a different team in every place. Um, right. and uh, But it's important that uh, that what's being driven here is coming from the people who are going to be uh, experiencing its impacts. Yeah, of fundamental importance, I think, you know, to, to actually, as you said to your, your earlier point, like if we're to create lasting change with things that last, right, it's like the community, there has to be buy-in, but then also belief in, in that, that that this work, you know, is is built by us and it makes sense, right? Like it's, it, it's actually addressing our needs. So um, no, I think that, that that's super cool. And it's great too to think about too, that I think so much of like the most empowering design today is, is exactly what you say, where it's, you know, talking with constituents and communities about what it is that they're actually facing uh, and taking that seriously and then letting them kind of define their own ecosystem too. Right. I think it's really, really cool. And then as a designer, it's like both facilitation as well as um, just saying, but also like, let's, 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 what about this? Maybe we haven't thought about that or maybe this group over here too. And kind of just like bringing in a little bit of the outsider perspective um, or what we, you know, in social science is called the emic and the edict, right? The insider perspective and the outsider perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, work so well together, you know, to, to kind of see that actually we can get what we hope is a more holistic perspective, right? And that so, um, you know, ecosystems and, and holism, it's funny how these like environmental metaphors <laughs> uh, hmm. have such pertinence, right? Also in, in this social space too, you know, like there's, there's something to them, you know, that, uh, that, that we need. I've been saying edic and emic, so it's emic and edict. Am I saying yeah. it wrong for the last 25 years? I don't know. That's a good question. <laughs> I've only ever heard emic and edict, so... Um, well, I, can, I mean, you're the anthropologist. I'm, and now I'm feeling very self-conscious, and I feel like I have to write my students and 
I mean, I am from Texas. I live in Boston. So one of my accents is wrong. I don't know which one. (laughs) (laughs) One of them is wrong. Well, I'm going to go with what what, what Adam said, because he's usually right about these things. And so one one of the things I wanted to, you know, kind of a final question for me, Darrell, was at least a plea for you. I really enjoy your posts on Medium, right? The content y'all created. And I'm Hoping that uh, you know some of these these great projects and insights, you know, I, I really I think it's really valuable and really important for people to understand this this kind of social design, not social engineering. We've decided we're not calling it that because that makes us feel icky. But you know, social design or community oriented design, maybe you know we can call it COD, community oriented design. Maybe we need to trademark that the COD framework, being from the North Atlantic, uh, you know to kind of get that voice out to get, you know, and I think there's a lot of potential for that integration of the social action, community empowerment and, you know, community oriented design that people need to hear about. Cause I don't know how much it's actually being integrated, um, you know, in schools or in people's thinking. Yeah. One of the things um, that we really, I was sort of thinking about this um, while you were talking, Adam, and it comes up again, uh, Gary, and what you just said, which is there's a story that I remember from, when I was first starting out as a designer um, that really helped me clarify what I wanted my model or, you know, our model um, or my work in the world to look like. And that was, it was a story about, I think it, I, it might've been in Myanmar um, that uh, a bunch of solar panels were donated at one point and um, people received these solar panels and they were all on their roofs, et cetera. Um, but over time, right, because a, a structure wasn't created to support the maintenance of these panels or, or show people where to get new ones, right, the panels broke. And uh, shortly afterwards, a, um, you know, countrywide or, or, or location-wide, like, electricity system came online, a grid system came online. And they were saying, hey, well, you know, we would like you, would you like electricity? You can pay for the electricity using the system, et cetera. And the, what I remember from the story was that people basically said, no, we'll wait for the free panels to come back. Like we'll wait, we'll wait for, you know, solar panels again. Um, and I, I think about that a lot as the way that it's sort of the, uh, it goes back to that sort of more colonial model or that um, I'm going to come in, I'm going to, I'm going to build something that's short term, but I'm not going to build infrastructure around it. I'm not going to make sure the community can maintain it. I'm not going to do, I'm not going to put in place all the other pieces that are needed to make sure that the community can continue to thrive after I'm not here. Um, and I, I just remember walking away from that story and being like, I, that's what I don't want. Like, I don't want uh, to create things that actually cause harm, you know, two or three years down the line. Instead, I want to create things that communities can own, communities can run, communities can can build up and upgrade and maintain. And um, so that's really what I think what drives us. It sounds like it reminds me of your car story, actually, that cars today, it's, they're hard to work on by yourself mm. because of all the electric designed to be serviced by the companies that produce them versus you and your dad, you know, dropping an engine in when you're young because of the electronics and computerized elements. So it's, it's actually an interesting way of coming back around to your early upbringing that, you know, the automotive industry has a colonial model of enslaving us to service at the service center versus service on our own. Yeah, I think a lot. I think a lot of our, um, I think a lot of the world is designed in a way that is meant to keep you um, attached to it, and we're just we're experimenting with a different model. What does it look like to make it so people aren't attached to us, that they are free to go take the knowledge and the insights that they've gained and 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 do more, and really that fits in with our vision, which is um, 
you know, what does it look like to create a world where we've, we've severely reduced systemic inequality and we've created new ways for people to thrive to do that, to really reach the level of America that I think is possible or the world that I think is possible where people can reach their potential. I can't do that alone, right? My team can't do that alone. We need more people who can replicate that model in different places. So hopefully, you know, more people can hear, hear, uh, you know, podcasts like yours and they can go out and they can, um, they can adopt that as their approach. That's the dream, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I, think, I, think, I think that's right on. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Darrell, again, thanks so much. Tell us, tell us a bit about where, where the good people can find DC design in your work and, and check out what you're doing. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, the best place to find us is on our website, dcdesignltd.com. Um, that's where we're constantly updating projects that we've been working on, the work that we do, um, you know, the different offerings that we have for, for those who are interested. Um, we're also launching a, um, a portion of the company called DC Design University, which is really where we want to distill the knowledge and insights that we've gained over the years for anyone who's interested in learning more about how to do the type of work that we do. So one of our, our classes is called Design Thinking Fundamentals for Social Change, which teaches you sort of that first step in creating social change, um, using design thinking as a foundation for it. Uh, and then we have another class called Jumpstart Your Personal Projects, which is meant to teach you um, the psychology of motivation and habit uh, for those who, who need a bit more structure being a self-starter as they create change in the world. Um, you can also find us on LinkedIn. Uh, that's where we post most of our articles. Uh, so, you know, be on the lookout for, for future uh, future pieces from us. Darrell, thank you so much for talking with us. This has been, this has been a really fun conversation. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for checking out our conversation with Darrell Coleman. Many thanks, Darrell, for joining us today on Experience by Design. Uh, and it's been great to speak with you and to hear about your work and experiences. And so we know that there's a ton of great lessons that folks and our listeners can, can derive from this conversation as well. So make sure that you check out DC Design's website and follow them on LinkedIn, one of the places that we like to spend our time as well. So if you want to continue the conversation around social design and how to design systems for social change and impact, go to our Experience by Design LinkedIn page, brand new, it's in the show notes right here, and you can contribute your thoughts and we'll be sure to chime in and talk with you as well. You can also communicate with us directly at feedback at experiencexdesign.com. We always love to hear from you uh, in your emails. We love your feedback. We love your ideas for new topics that you want to explore, people you'd like to hear from, books you're reading that you think should be covered, anything at all. Make sure you head over to feedback at experiencexdesign.com. Give us your thoughts and we'll make sure to get back with you and incorporate it into our podcast because we like to focus on your experiences as well. We hope you're all staying safe as we are getting through the summer for those of us in the North, Northern Hemisphere. Southern Hemisphere, hang in there. It's going to be a rough ride. And we hope that you really do learn how to affect change yourselves and your communities and that you're able to make better experiences for everybody. Talk to you later. Thanks.